All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I don't know why I feel the need to say that at every... I mean, you know what you... You, you press the button. You got the app. You got the thing. It got delivered. I don't need to tell you what you're listening to, but uh, how are you? I, you know, maybe I do. I, I don't know. How's it going? Everybody okay? I'm not, I'm not great today. I'll explain it in a, a little while. Maybe. I just reminded me of that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> me saying what you're listening to uh, at the top there reminded me of uh, years ago. I'm sure I've probably told this story, but um, it always kills me. And uh, it was just such a, a, a wonderful moment of ignorance, condescension, pettiness, uh, that I, it, it just really uh, it never leaves my mind. Years ago, I guess it was probably, it had to be a year or two into uh, the, uh, the podcast, and I was doing the Bob and Tom show up, the, up there in, uh, outside of Indianapolis. Bob and Tom was a, a very popular regional radio show that went national. It was uh, at one time, not unlike Alex Bennett's show in San Francisco, a, a popular platform for comics. A lot of comics were, were launched out of there. A lot of comics were able to make uh, either national or certainly regional careers for themselves from doing... Bob and Tom frequently. Uh, Chick McGee, who was uh, one of the guys on there, was very funny. He's got his own podcast. I think Bob just retired, and Tom is there. Uh, but this was, I think everyone was there when this happened. It was a very good morning radio show. It was a very good drive time radio show. When drive time meant something, it was one of the, the better ones. There's still a lot of good crews out there. And I have a lot of respect for uh, drive-time radio people. I've, I've done a bit myself. But these are good radio guys. And uh, I'm not being condescending or, or judgmental. I like doing morning radio. This is a couple years into the podcast. And, uh, you know, Tom was experiencing a, a kind of a flurry of kind of, uh, you know, tail feathers kind of ego strutting because I was there and he wanted to school all these young podcasters. These, these guys who are untethered uh, by any expectation financially broadcasting, you know, in his mind, I guess, you know, infringing on his airspace in the broader sense. So he, he had a, kind of school me and we were already kind of popular at that time but but he knew i was a podcaster and i was sitting there and this was the early on in podcasting and this dinosaur of uh, morning radio broadcasting one of the greats tom from bob and tom is uh laying it out for me he's like yeah these podcasters they don't know what you're doing they don't know what they're doing he listened to them which he hadn't they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to do what we do. I mean, you see these podcasters, they don't even know how to reset. <laughs> I 
We don't know how to reset. We don't know how to. Here, let me do, let me do some. Uh, I'll do some some classic resets. Hey, folks. Uh, this is uh, Mark Marin, of course. You're listening to WTF. Our guest today is uh, Sarah Polly. Uh, if you're just tuning in, I I, um, I I I wait. I didn't even I didn't set this up at the top. <laughs> but our guest is Sarah Polly today. Uh, she's a writer and director. She, her new film, Women Talking, is amazing. You probably remember her as an actor in the movies like uh, like The Sweet Hereafter, Go, Dawn of the Dead. She also wrote and directed the movies Away From Her, Take This Waltz, and Stories We Tell. And she's Canadian, which I love. I'm a big fan of her work as an actress. The Sweet Hereafter is a devastating movie that I've watched many times. Uh, Atom Ergoyen. The director is an odd and uh, brilliant filmmaker. But uh, her movies, away from her, amazing, with Julie Christie. And I just watched uh, Stories We Tell in prep to talk to her. I watched Women Talking, which I should see again. But just amazing. Uh, honor to, I've been trying to talk to her for years, and she's here. So I drifted away from the story. So now uh, I'll do a reset. Hey, what's up, folks? If you're just uh, joining us, this is WTF. I'm Mark Marin. Our guest today is Sarah Pauly. <laughs> These guys, they don't know how to reset. We don't have to, Tom. We don't have to. They know what they've tuned in for. They've chosen it. They didn't find it on the dial. They're not coming in the middle. For those of you who are just tuning in, I was talking about uh, the Bob and Tom show. Uh, which I, I did many times as a comic and once or twice as a podcaster. And uh, when I first started podcasting, Bob told me I didn't know how to reset. So if you're just joining us, I'm talking about resetting. This is great moment. Great moment. Uh, great comedy store hallway moment. Uh, a couple nights ago, I was at the comedy store. Oh, my God. I hope I don't have to go to the bathroom. I'll explain that to you later. So I'm recording this on Sunday. I guess I should go ahead and tell you. It's a weird transition. That uh, I'm recording this on Sunday and tomorrow, which would be today for you, like probably right now, I'm getting colonoscopy, pretty excited. So today um, I'm drinking a liquid, Suprep, to give myself diarrhea on purpose. Yeah. Uh, big day. No eating. Intentional diarrhea. This is one of the, the, the great things about getting older is that you get to look forward to this every eight years. It's been eight years. Had a nice clean one back in the day, eight years ago. Oh, that was another great story <laughs> at, the, uh, at the surgery place when they put me under. And I swear to God, in my recollection, there's just a lot of people around. I don't know why. You know, it was not a hospital. It was a surgery place, a place where they do minor surgeries. I just remember, like, there was people, a lot of people going around, and I was on, they'd put me on the, uh, they'd, they'd pop the IV in with the anesthesia, and, you know, and I'm about to get a colonoscopy, and I just remember some guy coming in to deliver someone's lunch. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so, comedy store, back hallway. Uh, I'm just, uh, I did a set in the main room, and I'm hanging out, and Dice is, walks in, and he's taking selfies with people, hanging around. Dice, Andrew Dice Clay, who I, you got to love. 
You just do. I I, I know he, you know, he is what he is, but uh, it's funny. It's funny to see him now. It's funny to see him. He's funny. But it was one of these moments where I'm standing there, I'm talking to him, I'm asking him about how his tour's going, this and that. He's like, yeah, we'll go out to do the, you know, uh, sometimes I do uh, smaller clubs, smaller clubs. Uh, other times I do theaters. But uh, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if they pay. So I'm talking to Dice and we're just standing there. He's a very big guy. And a guy comes out of the main room and uh, he's going, he's coming back from the bathroom and he stops. He says, I'm sorry to interrupt, but Mark, uh, that was a great set. And I really needed to tell you this. I mean, I don't, uh, I was going to email you, but I didn't, but I just want to say your podcast, you know, changed my life. And, uh, for the better and i just i wanted to thank you for that it's been very important to me over the years and you know great set and it's good to see you sorry to interrupt and he walks away and dice goes wow that's nice you know i don't get that uh, what i get is you got me in trouble you're the reason i was kicked out of the house <laughs> you're the reason i got kicked out of school yeah i don't get the uh you changed my life much uh, it was very funny. Hey, if you're just uh, joining us, Mark Marin, WTF. And um, I, I told everybody uh, before the dice bit that uh, I have a colonoscopy today. So that gets you up to speed. Sarah Pauly's our guest. And I was just talking about Andrew Dice Clay, who you guys remember from the 80s, some with uh, excitement, others with uh, anger and uh, judgment. Oh, my God. I'm going to have to go to the bathroom soon. Hey, this is a good heads up for you, you you fellas, for anybody. Try to take care of yourself in terms of going to the doctor if you can, which I hope you can. Go get your prostate poked. Go get your go get go get your your ass examined. Get a colonoscopy. I'm not excited about it, man. I'm talking to people, guys my age. It's just like it just it sneaks up on you, man. It's just all of a sudden you realize like, wow, I'm talking to people and they're talking about dying and they're talking about friends dying. And I'm in my late 50s. Did I mention that? 59. I feel all right, but I don't have, you know, I don't, it's just, I, life goes on. It just becomes this continuum. And you don't always realize like, oh my God, I haven't talked to you in a while. How'd you become 10 years older than me? Or look it. That's mean. But I do realize, like, I don't, I don't think I really registered how old a lot of my peers are or people in my business until, like, because now I'm 59. And I was talking to Kit yesterday, and it was like, uh, she was talking about Paul Giamatti. And I was like, he's got to be my age, right? Close, right? Paul Giamatti, 55. There are people in their 40s that I thought were my peers, and it's not until you get old and you start going like, sure, I know that guy. I came up with him. How old is he? 44. What? What happened? How did he stop aging and I got old? I'm all right. Everything's all right. I'll let you know how the colonoscopy goes. I will. I watched um, Women Talking and was uh, blown away. That, you know, it, it is seemingly a period piece, but it's not. It could be happening today. It takes place 
with a group of women in a barn talking about um, a mass uh, rape of many of them by the men in a religious sect and what they're going to do about it. And it deals with a lot of the issues that are relevant today in terms of rape, sexual abuse, abuse of power, and, and, and fear. And it was a great film. And, and I watched her other movie, uh, which was a documentary that really kind of blew my mind. Um, that was called Stories We Tell. And I've seen uh, her first film, I think she directed, and wrote, was Away From Her with Julie Christie about uh, people, dementia, Alzheimer's. But I, and, and she was in many movies as a, as a younger woman, The Sweet Hereafter, devastating movie. But she's got a book out called Run Towards the Danger, which is um, essays. I believe that's available to you as well. But I was just, you know, I've been wanting to talk to her for a long time. And um, she's here. So this is me talking to Sarah Pauly. The reason I said I had a Canadian morning was I, I have, uh, when I go up there, I, I drink Tim Hortons. I'll drink it. And I've decide, I decide when I'm up there, like, this stuff's got something in it. It's making me crazy, and I love it. So I bought, like, a huge tent can of it. <laughs> like Tim Hortons. Yeah. well, amazing. You wear, I wear out of it. Do you know what I mean? It's not good, but it's sort of like Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, it's comforting. If you, if you, but it's, I think it gets you jacked up. Uh-huh. I think there's a caffeination thing. That it gets you, you ready for hockey. Exactly. It gets ready you ready to, to just beat make people a slap up shot. with sticks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't do that. I just like <laughs> makes me uh, my brain on fire. So, um, all right. I uh, I watched uh, movies. I had to, I wanted to get up to speed in a thorough way. I di- I didn't watch too many of the old acting movies. Oh, you watched, oh, my movies. Yes. I thought you were just saying I watched movies no, and I I've wondered if you movies. were smelling burnt toast. <laughs> yeah. The, I the watched Hortons. movies. The, the Hortons I wear shirts. I'm, I'm, I'm having a Horton stroke. <laughs> it's crazy. No, I, you, I I actually watched The the Sweet Hereafter with my girlfriend recently because she'd never seen it. Uh, and it's a devastating movie. And it's, mm-hmm. But, well, let's start with that. Just did Ergoyen have any impact on you as a director? Yeah. I mean, I think it was the first time I was really interested in filmmaking was watching him work. So I'd been working as an actor since I can remember, I think since I could speak. But yeah. I'd never been so captivated by what someone was trying to do. He's kind of a, 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 you know, he's a guy who commits to his vision. And it's yeah. it's not always easy and, and it's not always uh, palatable or understandable immediately. Mm-hmm. So what, how did that impact you? Well, what and you? also, I think he, he strives to have a deep understanding of his collaborators, and that included me when I was a 17-year-old girl. And I don't think anyone had ever been really that interested in what was going on in my brain before uh-huh. and how I thought about things and perceived things. So I felt like a true collaborator. Um, and I, I suddenly realized that, you know, making films or being in films wasn't necessarily the most superficial job in the world, which is what I thought at that age. I was a political activist at that age. I thought making films was kind of this dilettantish, you know, bougie thing to do. And I was really cynical about the whole enterprise. And then seeing Adam work, I went, oh, this is actually a way of talking about real things and having real conversations. And that was that was huge for me. It was pivotal. And uh, 
but before that, you didn't feel like you were part of an artistic process. Like, you know, the word uh, storytelling is kind of a buzzword now. You know, we're storytellers. But and, and <laughs> we are. I, I understand that. But no one ever spoke like that 10 years ago. Know, it know. also sounds so boring. <laughs> and then you hear and there's a lot about can, telling Canadian stories in Canada. Oh, yeah. We need to tell Canadian stories. And I always just think and you hear the barn door creak open and the cat. And you're just like, I don't want to yeah, sit yeah. through whatever the storytelling <laughs> is. Right. It is. <laughs> Please it is God, no. Yeah, it is. An, an, an action word, uh, but but the movies before that, you didn't feel in any way that you were part of something artistic, or you judged yourself harsh because you were good at it. Yeah, I I mean I know that I you know hadn't only worked on bad stuff. I'd done a lot of bad stuff, but I hadn't worked only on bad stuff. I worked on a lot of television that I was pretty cynical about as a child actor. I think I just didn't realize that people would be using this medium to explore ideas and having meaningful conversations and even ones that had political resonances. And But were you capable of that when you were 10 or 11 or necessarily thinking in those terms? I, I think I was in those. I was a, a kind of an obnoxious kid. I oh, was right, like yeah. one of those like little precocious kids who's not at all wise, yeah. but can seem really smart. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. yeah it, you're just volunteering to be bullied when you're like that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, you know, because like I was like that too, the kind of know-it-all kid. And yeah, you know, there's a vulnerability to it that's annoying. Too, when a uh, lot of child actors never outgrow it. Like, have you? I don't know if you've ever met a grown child actor who's still couple. trying to impress the adults. Yeah, like oh, they no. haven't quite read oh, the room that they're an adult right. now. <laughs> And they're still doing it. Yeah, and they, yeah. it's like, we, we don't know you're actually, yeah, you're yeah. 40. Yeah, you can. So we yeah. know you know big words. Yeah. It's okay. You should. You should know big words. <laughs> I'm so, I so want to <laughs> want you to name that person. But um, so when do you find yourself like politically activated and what happened mm -hmm. to do that to where something like being in uh, Adam's movies would, would make you realize that it was a different way to express yourself? Um, when I was a teenager, I was really involved in this direct action group. It was an anti-poverty organization and mostly dealt with homelessness and housing. And um, that was sort of my world as a teenager. I had quit acting. And then Adam, who I had worked with once before, asked me to do The Sweet Hereafter. And so really that was the first job I'd done in ages. And I thought it was a one-off and I was just going to go do this movie and then I'd go back to my life as an activist. And then that just led me to be far more interested. And it was so interesting, that film, because it was about a community and about, I mean, it's about so many things, but part of it is about greed and the monetizing of grief and somebody coming in and taking advantage of this community that's breaking apart and, and what community means and what grief means. And I mean, there's so many things that are explored, but for me, that was so interesting, the way he wasn't being didactic and he wasn't hammering over the head, but there was actually, I don't even know if he would describe it this way, but for me, there was this very political thing he was doing in that film as well. Absolutely. And and the the foundational emotional element of Ian Holmes' character and his relationship with his daughter yeah. and the incestuous relationship with your father yeah. playing against each other in the midst of that. They're, because you're dealing with, with greed, but you're dealing with grief yeah. in these very kind of, you know, twisted ways. It was a yeah. mind-blowing movie. How the fuck did he get that uh, school bus shot? <laughs> I mean, how many— I think it was—it must have been CG. Really? I think Back so. then? Wait, no, was it? 
I, thought, I don't know. I feel like I was I was in my trailer. I, I, because <laughs> I like know. there was part of me that's sort of like that must be like Buster Keaton in the general. You ain't one shot at blowing <laughs> up that bridge. You like <laughs> I thought in my mind I'm like he had to get that right that one time. I I really don't want it to be special effects, but you're probably right. Well, I think that he did put the bus out on the ice with a bunch of dummies in it. Sure. And then because I think I got one of the dummies as a rat present. Oh, okay. Bit, yeah, bit the one that was you. Bit freaky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then and then I think the the it going into the ice must have been. Yeah. Well, it, it's, do you find it, I watched, um, I haven't watched the the Julie Christie movie in a while, but I, I, away from her, right? Yeah. But I remember it. And it seems like it's sort of weirdly prescient in, mm. in terms of what you've evolved in, in terms of thinking about, mm. like with the concussion and other stuff that you were, something interested you about the deterioration of memory, you know, yeah. decade before your own experience with it. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. I mean, I think I keep returning to the subject matter of memory over and over again hmm. and the questioning of memory and the subjectiveness of memory and what stories get told about yeah. our past and who they're by and what interests they have in telling that particular story in order to either justify or validate who they are, or what yeah. they've done. That's just it does seem to be for me a, a, a kind of a recurring theme. And I think if you have a recurring theme like that in your work, it's probably something that you're not completely conscious of the reason for. You're probably trying to unpack something's subconscious. That... Well, it's scary. The because my father has uh, is begun this dementia process, mm -hmm. and what happens alongside of whatever curious, however curious you are about memory, is like what is what's the point of any of it mm -hmm. when you watch it go away? Mm -hmm. There's something so fragile about that where you're like, well, fuck, that's. It all just goes away. So if you're not thinking about the future, yeah. like or 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 implanting something in your children or in culture about stories, you know, it's just it. No one's going. It's gone. It's yeah. just gone. And it and there's and it's really gone. And it's so fragile, right? Yeah. Is that what happened when you got hit in the head? Yeah. Did you? Well, my dad also had dementia, and that was which dad? My yeah. Good question. Yeah. Um, the dad who raised me oh, had, had dementia. Oh, he did? Yeah. So, he, so I ended up kind of living through that after having made the film about it. In fact, I kind of identified really early having done so much research about dementia that he had it. And, um, and no one believed me. <laughs> and then he went for this test. The test with the clock? Yeah. There was like this test that he went to and I couldn't make it and my husband went with him. Yeah. And and I got this, you know, text from my husband saying, oh, my God, we have a problem here. And basically what happened was my dad had passed with flying colors. Yeah. There was one thing that the doctor wanted to address, which seemed to be a lapse in logic or memory, which yeah. was that he, he was claiming that his daughter had made a movie about dementia and that she had been nominated for an Oscar for it. <laughs> And my husband was like, no, 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 that, that, that really happened. And then the, then I got thrown under the bus. Then the doctor was like, oh, well, when people know a lot about one disease, they tend to see it everywhere yeah. and diagnose everybody. Yeah. So it was years between that and, and him being diagnosed. Really? But I just saw it kind of coming because, you know, I did know a lot about it at that point. I'd read so much about it and thought so much about it for that film. Why? What, what was it about that film? Why, I mean, about making that movie? Yeah, I'd also been in the sort of nursing retirement home environment a lot with my grandmother. So it was an environment I was really focused on, yeah. interested in. And I just worked with Julie Christie as an actor. And How I read the that? short story and I just went, I have to see her play this part. It was amazing. She's an incredible human being. Yeah. Just an expansive, brilliant 
Yeah. Amazing human. I just watched uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller again. Oh, my God. It's so good. I keep watching it. it like, it, it just so keeps good. revealing more. Like, this time I came out of it, I'm like, it's about the hat. The whole thing's about the hat. <laughs> the hat and that jacket. I don't know. What, I'm not sure what it means, <laughs> but I know it's a hat. So I watched uh, Stories We Tell, and it was jarring to me because I was com- I didn't know anything about it. I don't – I'm not – great at research and uh so i'm just watching it i'm just like let's check it out and i'm completely buying the archival footage i didn't know i didn't know the trick and i'm just like wow who is shooting all this this is crazy (laughs) that they had all this archival footage and then so the turn in it where you're standing there in one of the archival footage like what the fuck is happening (laughs) so i felt uh betrayed somehow to be honest with you sorry about that (laughs) i apologize but the device of it, so like it, it feels fairly, and I'm sorry we're going through all these movies, but we'll get to the new stuff. But I, but it feels like this is a, a, another thing, a defining thing about your point of view creatively around stories we tell, stories we hear, stories we think are true, right? Mm-hmm. So you create a, a, a kind of perfect fiction cinematically yeah. around these this documentary unfolding. It's like a half and half trip. Yeah. So the vision of that is kind of brilliant. So what what how, why'd you do that? I mean, I think it's so interesting how needy we are with our narratives yeah. and how we kind of present these narratives or stories about ourselves to explain who we are or within a family how certain everyone is of their own version of something and yet no one's version really lines up with anyone else's. It's a story as old as the hills is that people remember things differently. But for some reason that doesn't necessarily lead us to have an appropriate skepticism about our own versions of things. Mm. Um, And so ultimately I think I was really interested in this story being told by a chorus of voices instead of one and the idea that Every time you feel you have a narrative, it gets it gets ripped away from you, which I think is the honest and true experience of of an aware life is yeah. that we hold these rigid narratives and they're actually very fluid and flexible and they disintegrate yeah. and we're unwilling to let them go. And I think it's also – it's funny when you go back – going back to the idea of storytelling and this idea of narrative is it can be really dangerous to do that. I mean I think one of the reasons you feel really relaxed in Canada <laughs> and I think about moving this, we don't have a really strong narrative about our country and that's <laughs> yeah. good and bad. Yeah. I mean that's – it's um, it's hard for us to fight for things there sometimes, like I think, because we don't have this strong story, and we don't have a story of having had a revolution and throwing off colonialism. Right. I think that's probably kind of bad. But at the same time, you know, a narrative can be harmful. A narrative can make you too sure of yourself. A narrative can tell you that one side's right and the other is wrong, or these people are more and these people are less. The whole idea of a narrative, I think, um, can be the most important. Thing in the world in terms of survival, and it can also be the most damaging thing in the world in terms of enabling one to do harm or to negate another's version. So I think even though, you know, in stories we tell, I'm dealing with it in a very kind of personal way, I think it's also just about the concept of narrative and storytelling and what that means, how important it is, and the harm it can do. Right. Uh, but through the course of it, you, you find out that your biological father is is somebody else. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have – you explore the relationship with him that's new and, and kind of in and out in terms of people wanting to, you know, tell their version of it or, or monetize it or, or mm-hmm. express it. But, but I found the device of the archival footage and the way you cast it 
was kind of seamless. So the choice to do that, you know, in relation to what you're talking about in, in creating that cinematic narrative, you know, what were you trying to do there? I mean, I think I just had this sense of wanting the rug to be pulled out in the same way that it was for me. I mean, I had a story about my life that got pulled away from that me. That it wasn't your real dad. It wasn't my real dad, which, by the way, it's so funny. I've been thinking about this lately. My biological father yeah. won a Golden Globe for producing a movie in the 70s called Lies My Father Told Me. Yeah. How good is that? It's great. It, 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 it's <laughs> it's one those, unbelievable. It's one of those things that makes you feel like, like I I'm, I'm, I'm don't necessarily believe in something beyond coincidence, but it seems like I'm on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, so I feel like just that sense of the rug being pulled out, I really wanted the audience to have that experience, even in terms of the way we laid out information and the unpeeling of the onion so that, you know, you see this story about my mom and having this affair and this, you know, tension with her life and this love affair and what she was going to do. But it's actually not until like far into the movie that you find out actually she's also left another marriage before this. Yeah. And there's been another divorce in which she's lost her children, which completely informs the way she probably thought about and behaved yeah. in relationship to this right. relationship. And, and you don't really, you know, you don't really give any identification of the siblings. Yeah. Like, yeah. but two of those siblings you didn't grow up with, really. Yeah. But yeah. you seem all to be close now. Yeah. In fact, my older two siblings are the closest ones. I didn't grow up in the same house, but, you know, John Buchan is, um, who's my brother, is my casting director on all my films. I talk oh, okay. to him most days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, odd, and oddly, I'm close with my my brother and sister, my oldest brother and sister who I didn't grow up with, their stepsister on yeah. the other side with their dad. I'm very close to her as though she's a sister. Uh -huh. So we have all these odd yeah. kind of pathways to each other. Right. Well, yeah. So that is interesting that you chose to sort of reveal these things, mm -hmm. you know, so everybody is taken aback. But but I still like, is there any actual, like the, the matching of actresses uh -huh. to your real mom and the fictional mom is pretty, pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, he's really close. And I mean, what helps is my brother's my casting director casting my family. So he knows every actor in Canada. And he's already identified who could play everybody over the years. Yeah. And the guy who played, uh, um, what's his name, Galkin? Yeah, the Harry Galkin. Guy, Harry yeah. Galkin as a young man. It was yeah. good. It, but, th but there really is a moment there where you're watching, you're like, who's shooting all this? I mean, how could they have gotten all this proper? But yeah. it looked good. What did you shoot on, like Super 8 or something? It was on Super 8. I had this amazing cinematographer, Iris Ng, who tested every Super 8 camera in everybody's basement in Toronto for months. Uh. And then she played a character. So she looked at all my dad's Super 8 footage and the way he shot and what he focused on and uh -huh. how he moved the camera. And she played him. Which meant she wasn't necessarily always going towards what the action was. She'd go towards what she knew my dad would be interested in. Uh -huh. And the idea was sometimes if a moment was too convenient to have been filmed, right. it would sort of happen in the background of something else she was filming. Or she'd pan off of something and find that and lose interest in it and go away from it, even if that's the pivotal shot. Yeah. It had to feel like they were in character. And then my editor, Mike Munn, also had to you know play the character of you know, somebody trying to find footage yeah, yeah. to tell this story, but not convenient footage. But you, you intercut it with actual Super 8 footage of the time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so it's it all intercut. matched up. It's about 50-50 real and reconstructed. And when you're done with that, you know, the final product, 
like there was some sort of uh, you you were making sense of something for yourself. Uh, yeah. And and what did you come out of the experience with after you saw the completed thing? I mean, it was an amazing experience because everyone in my family participated and everyone was supportive, and that yeah. wasn't it wasn't without cost. I mean, things get said in that film that are uncomfortable for people and that were difficult for people to hear. And somehow everybody kind of came out okay and supportive, which sort of shocked me. Yeah. I don't think I expected that. I mean, I was nervous about it. I tried to be careful with people. But ultimately, you're exposing a lot of stuff and yeah. some stuff that people didn't necessarily know. And um, I mean, I think what I really realized in making that film was that this idea of making a film that's told by a chorus of voices instead of one was where I wanted to head as a filmmaker. Well, which you know, you do in this in this newest film, but but it's also about you know the nature of stories, right? Mm-hmm. And the stories we tell us, and this ourselves, and the stories we hang on to, and why we tell ourselves those mm-hmm. stories. But like, but is uh, is Galkin still alive? No, he, oh. he and my dad died within two months of each other. Really, it was a very dangerous time to be one of my dads. <laughs> it was a very dangerous summer. Um, so yeah, my my dad died, and two months later, Harry died. So it was quite a uh, quite a thing. Because that movie, you're you know, Harry seems okay. You know, he seems like you know he keeps it together. But your father becomes the sort of tragedy of that movie somehow. Hmm. Like I, there was something about him reading his book for you, mm-hmm. and that actor coming out, and then just to see him kind of like he never really reckoned with it. It seemed mm-hmm. the loss, and and I don't think he, outside of expression, you know, was totally honest about how devastated he was to find out. Mm-hmm. Do you find that? I don't know. I mean, my dad was a really unusual guy, and he did process and experience things differently than anyone I've met. Yeah, and partly that was kind of the repression of an English man of that generation, and partly it really was that he kind of led philosophically into things before emotionally. And so he would kind of see um, ways that would seem to the outside world to be very magnanimous, but magnanimous, but for him were just logical. Yeah. Um, you know, why should it make a difference? Yeah. A different DNA. Oh, perhaps oh, the right, biggest tragedy right, right. here is that your mother felt she had to keep this secret, yeah, not yeah, that yeah. I'm having this loss. He had this incredibly generous response, which I think – in somebody else, I would think, was a masking. And yeah. him, I just think he really did absorb and process things differently than most people I know. Huh. Was it, he a good parent? Yes and no. I mean, he was incredible in terms of really making you feel wonderful. Like, I think, like, from a young age, I had a sense that he was in awe of me as though I was a colleague of his or a peer of his that he looked up to. Like, from the time I was two. Yeah. So that sense of, you know, you did a cartwheel and you have a parent say, wow, and, yeah, yeah. and it's a real wow. And just this sense of not propping you up and making you feel better than other people, but a sense that you were precious and exciting and entertaining and loved. That's am- He was amazing at that. Uh-huh. And I realize most people don't get a whisper of that. And so I do hold a tremendous amount of gratitude for that. In terms of taking care of everyday life and basic necessities in terms of physical needs or being responsible or being able to create like a clean, healthy environment to live in or take responsibility or interest in my safety or clothes or 
terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't have been worse. Like, really, <laughs> ne- absolutely negligent. I shouldn't have been in the house after 11. But, I mean, it's interesting because would I trade – now, after years and years of therapy, would I trade that in yeah. for a more responsible parent who kept me better taken care of but didn't give me that sense of wonder? Yeah about the world and also a sense that I was inherently okay. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, and that's taken a long time. I think you have to get really sad and upset and mad about it. And I I just think at this age, I'm almost 44, I wouldn't trade him. Yeah. Well, that's sweet. It's true. It's not, well, and, I mean. And I, I can see what the options are. It's always helpful to be see, see what the options well, might have been. Well, I have to assume that <laughs> through the process of making that movie, you, like, the trauma of losing a parent at age 11, however, mm-hmm. You want to frame that. It's real and it has psychological repercussions. Mm-hmm. You know, you're probably fortunate that you had the siblings and, and at least a, a, an excited father mm-hmm. or you could have really been hobbled yeah. emotionally. Yeah. I mean, I think I was. Yeah. I would say, yeah. So, yeah, my mom died when I was 11. I would say it took a long, long time to be to just feel like you weren't crumbling all the time or on the verge of crumbling yeah. all the time. Um, so I, I don't think... Without somebody there to catch you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I don't think I felt a lot of the time, um, growing up at least. But yeah. I do feel like, yeah, just that sense that both my mom and my dad, for the time that they were there, thought I was great. That's yeah. a big deal. Like, the more I get to know people, the more I realize most people didn't get... Any of that. Yeah. Which is unbelievable. Well, you were acting already, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they must have been excited. They were actors. Yeah, they were excited <laughs> by that. Did you have that from your parents? What did you what? feel from your parents? Like a sense that they thought you were... I, what was your feeling that they of your their feeling about you when you were little? Well, I think about this stuff a lot. You know, I, I know that my grandmother was very excited because I was the first grandchild mm-hmm. on both sets of grandparents. But my parents... We're, we're sort of ill-equipped emotionally and remain so. Hmm. Uh, my dad was a doctor, so there was financial support, but they were they were both kind of very self-centered and a little competitive. And I felt that there was usually – there was if there was concern, it was panic that mm-hmm. something would happen bad. But usually I just felt they were kind of into their own thing. Hmm. But because of that, not much discipline and a complete allowance to, to sort of – Design myself, hmm. which you know, for better or for worse. Yeah, which isn't bad. I mean, I, I okay. I, I mean, I, I had that kind of total lack of structure and boundaries too, which has many. There are many problems with it, but there's yeah. also something amazing about it. Th- there is, but like I never like there, the the regrets I have was that you don't get a foundation of self. Uh huh. Th- it's something you sort of have to put together, and I think that if you have parents that. Are, are capable of the selfless love that their their responsibility is in a way mm-hmm. that you know they're they're able to let a, a, to support a, a child enough to to become a self that is grounded hmm. right hmm. so if you're kind of scrambling for a, a sense of self it's it, it, it's you know it's terrible kind of yeah does that make sense yeah it does I remember reading this thing that Lars von Trier said about. There were no boundaries and yeah. no rules at all in his house when he was little. And he remembers hiding under his dining room table, just yeah. thinking, feeling like the ceiling was going to cave in. And yeah. I feel like there is something there. There's something about not having Anxiety something. creates yeah. anxiety. Yeah. And then I read something that I talk about a lot about, you know, the nature of emotional 
or negligence or abuse. Uh-huh. Um, you know, equally destructive. Like my, my parents are not physically abusive. They, you know, relatively emotionally abusive. But just because they're not – they're both so selfish, they're not they're – not, mm-hmm. uh, there's an emotional negligence, right? Mm-hmm. And it, I read this thing called The Fantasy Bond by this guy Robert Firestone, this psychiatrist, psychologist who I talk about all the time, that he says that if – if there's something going on in the home that makes you uncomfortable, like if your parents aren't showing up for you emotionally or they're abusive in any – whatever it is, when – if you're young enough, there's no part of you that is enabled to blame your parents hmm. because they're your parents. So you blame yourself. Oh, wow. And you, you implant a voice yeah. in your head that is a surrogate parent that yeah. says you're terrible. Yeah. That feels very resonant for me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I think it goes along with a lot of the stuff that you talk about in your book and just in terms of of how we react to trauma in general. Yeah. And why do you think that your parents were like that? Did that come from trauma in their lives or how did they get there? I don't – I, I don't know because it, it, it's not it, – it's sort of subtle, you know, in the way that they were both – they're both still sort of not really capable of nurturing. Mm. And, and my mom's sort of aware of it. They're not without charm, but neither one of them were capable of love. I don't know. Were they nurtured? Were they? I loved? don't know. Like I, you know, my grandmother was a big personality and relatively selfish. I don't really know the, the sort of the nature because my mother had eating disorders you know, mm-hmm. her whole life, and my father was, you know, kind of like sexually compulsive and narcissistic. Mm-hmm. I don't know really where it comes from. I, you know, I get bits and pieces like you mm-hmm. do in your movie. You mm-hmm. get bits and pieces. And you create a narrative out of the Right. And then pieces. you're sort of like, oh, my grandfather must have been a monster. Yeah. You, you know, this the guy I met who was just sitting around eating fruit. Yeah, yeah. You know? And who knows? <laughs> like, yeah. Right? It's interesting, too, because we're often wrong about that, especially if it's a couple generations away. Like, I feel like the narrative in, in our family was when one of my sets of grandparents was that um, my grandmother was this really nasty Yeah horrible person and my grandmother was this my grandfather was this easygoing lovely guy and then yeah. as the years went on I spent more and more time with her as she was falling apart kind of realizing well she was dealing with a whole lot and yeah. actually maybe she was doing pretty well in terms of her personality considering what she was up against and this person who'd been kind of let off the hook you know and then and then I got to know her and ended up being very close to her and kind of loving her in the last yeah. few years of her life um but a lot of that was unpacking the narrative of like, okay, maybe this wasn't just like the nicest guy sitting in the corner and she was this horrible witch. Actually, maybe this is far more complicated. But I think, yeah, yeah. We only what we get to see is like the responses to a life and how that manifests in behavior, not how they got there. Right, exactly. Well, my, my grandfather on my mother's side was like apparently this raging lunatic. But by the time, you know, I kind of knew him, he was just, you know, laying on the couch watching sports, uh-huh. you know, and, and uh-huh. laughing at things. Uh-huh. But, like, he had kind of an edge to him. Yeah. But, like, I don't know what kind of intensity that was, you yeah. know, there was. And I know that my dad's father was a fuck around. And that, you know, so, you know, all that stuff is passed down. Yeah. You know? But what do you do? I'm with? interested in the fact that you don't tell, like, a concrete story about this. And I think it's really interesting that you don't cling to, oh, well, this is why my parents were like this. Like, most people have created a very concrete narrative around this kind of thing to justify and explain yeah. how their gen- dynamics have developed. I think it's interesting how you let it be well, not known. That, you know, you get, it, 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 it's like, you know, you did a movie about it, but, you know, you compress them on things, mm-hmm. you know, and you find out bits and pieces. And I used to do a joke about it, I, you know, like about things my father has told me. 
you know, in his seventies before he got this dementia, would it, it probably still where that, you know, there, 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 there's no end. There, there's not a statute of limitations on what you're allowed to tell your kid. You know what I mean? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. And there, there, there probably should be, and it should be lifelong. Yeah. Like, you know, there's yeah. some things like he'll just be like, you know, that lady. I mean, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. You know, mom's still alive and I got to. <laughs> I got to live with this fucking secret because you, your your ego wants you to oh tell me things. God. You know what I mean? Wow. It was a trip. You should. You probably should move to Canada. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm coming more and more pro this plan. Why? What, what, I don't know. I just think you might need some distance from <laughs> things. Yeah. But like in thinking about the new film and, 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 and in the parts of the book that I, I read and, and in talking about your evolution as a... Uh, a storyteller. <laughs> you know, I didn't know where to come at it because when I when I initially watched the movie, you know, a couple of things, you know, it was sort of um, the different points of view uh, of all the women in relation to the rapes within their community. You know, I mean, I, I, I guess we should set it up a little bit. It's a Mennonite. Are they Mennonite? Mm-hmm. It's a Mennonite community where many of the women were drugged with bovine tranquilizers mm-hmm. and raped by uh, some of the men in, mm-hmm. right. And it went on for years in the middle of the night. And this it, is, yeah. is this based on a truth? It's based on a true story that happened in a Mennonite colony in Bolivia from 2005 to 2009, uh-huh. or 2010. And um, it's a it, the the film is based on a novel by Miriam Taves, and the novel is a response to those true life events. So it doesn't cover those events. Those events are not in the film. It's about this imagined response by the women of the community where they sit down and have this debate about whether or not they should stay and fight for a different kind of colony, whether or not they should stay and do nothing and forgive the men as they're being instructed to by the elders, or whether they should leave and create their own colony. So this is an imagined debate that takes place in this hayloft about how to respond. And what struck me about the presentation of it is, like, are you going to make a theater theatrical version of it because mm-hmm. it plays like a play just by nature mm-hmm. of the setting yeah i mean i think it would be great as a play as well great. yeah i mean the i i was determined to make the film as cinematic as yeah. possible but absolutely it could be a play as well because it's it's like it's it's kind of loaded up like a play yeah that is sort yeah. of like we're gonna reckon with this yeah yeah and the one man in you know who who was there as a secretary and mm-hmm. as a listener, it was that was a very delicate balance of of acting. You know, in the face of of rage or complacency or 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 um, subverted rage, mm-hmm. that that guy has to sort of represent that sex. Yeah, uh, he, he did a very good job. <laughs> but what I started thinking about today, in retrospect, and after reading the book, a couple of things that you know the the nature and you addressed it a little bit. Before of what I, I I sort of started to think of as institutional gaslighting, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know the way out of our own fear that we gaslight ourselves mm-hmm. into thinking you know, and I'm just throwing that word around because it, it it seems to have a very specific meaning. But why can't we broaden that? Because mm-hmm. I mean, institutional gaslighting is the nature of religious belief in a way, right? Yeah, I mean, I think in a in a in a society like you know, the one in the film where the structures of power have yeah. become kind of this corrupted. I tend to sort of parse out the faith from the structures sure. because I think that 
you know, what the women in the film are doing isn't actually trying to abandon their faith or their religion. They're actually trying to figure out how to get closer to it with integrity, which means throwing off the structures that have sprung up around it and the sort of power grabs and hierarchies. hierarchies, Yeah. You know what? I'm going to give up on the word hierarchies Hierarchies, of power that have sprung up around it. Um, But also their their personal morality, you know, as women in that type of community becomes corrupted because of the, the need for them not to take action. Yeah. And so they have to kind of go, well, how do we... How do we stay true to our faith the way we understand it? And how is that different from what we've been taught and what's been handed down to us? And so in order to forgive, which is what's being demanded of them with no accountability and no healing. By other women. Yeah, by women in the, – the, the conversation that's happening has no men in yeah. it. So any of that hierarchy that is male-based mm-hmm. – is being manifest in in women who have believe it. Believe it or are in relationships where they have no power and feel there is no option except yeah. to accept it, except to forgive. Right. And so I think what these women kind of are wrestling with is this notion of forgiveness and what it means to them and how they might come to that in a real way. And the first step that has to be taken is to get out of harm's way. And The second step that has to be taken is how do we imagine a colony where these things are not allowed to happen again? How do we imagine an equitable society, one in which we're making decisions collectively and have a voice so that forgiveness becomes this evolving – there's an evolution of the meaning of the word into something much richer and more complex and ambitious than simply forgiving – it's about how do we create the conditions in which one day we might be able to forgive and what has to happen for that to, to be possible. Right. And, it, and it's, a, it's a timeless conversation mm-hmm. and debate, you know, both within the religious community that you represent. That could be happening yeah. 100 years ago or, or now. Yeah. But it's also a, a relevant conversation mm-hmm. around where women are at now in relation to men and culture mm-hmm. and institutional um, negligence. What would the word be? And violence. Violence. Yeah, I think both. I mean, that, and, and I do think there there are so many echoes in this conversation yep. about so many things we're dealing with. But one of them also is democracy. I mean, what does it look like to sit down in a room with a bunch of people you don't agree on every single yep. issue with and actually have to work it out together yep. and find a way forward? And I think so much of the conversation over the last five and six years has become, I mean, it's been so important, the sort of naming of the harms, and in some cases, the naming of the people who perpetrated those harms. Those are important conversations to have. I think equally important and slightly neglected is, okay, but what do we what do we want to see instead? What do we want to build? How do we do that? How do we work with people who don't agree with us? Right. How do we move to something better? And what do we have to do to make that happen? And that can't be us shouting on either side of the room at each other and just shaking our narratives at each other. It's actually got to be a fruitful conversation that's hard and difficult and challenging and goes to really raw soft spots without anyone running away. Right. And that to me became really interesting in terms of a focus of a project, especially in the current climate. Yeah. And after reading parts of the book, I mean, how much of this, not unlike... You know, the movie, the the documentary about your family, uh, you know, um, you seem to want to resolve personal issues with the films that are not 
broad, but are specific. Mm. So in reading the essay about Gian Gomeshi, you know, the way you frame it in the book from all the points of view that you discuss it with yourself and with others and, and your choice to not go public with it at the time seems to be at the heart of this movie. Hmm. It's funny. I don't think of it as the heart of the movie. Okay, I maybe do, not the heart, I, but, but I do think that I think most women, sadly, have experiences that they would bring sure. to this film or, or, or Miriam Taves' book where there would be resonance, there would be echoes. Yeah. I think certainly it informed certain moments in the film. Yeah. I mean, that moment where Mayal, one of the characters, has a kind of PTSD episode and ends up talking about how the f- the fact that she was made to disbelieve herself was harder um, than the violent act itself. That, I think, um, comes from my experience, but also so many conversations with other women and certainly from watching women go through the court system in trials like this and how brutalizing that is. Yeah, it's a it's a it's like a a a very kind of, you know, devastating but you know the way you had a conversation with yourself in the essay. Mm-hmm. You, you know, and you ask a good question in here, you know, why do we write things about ourselves? That mm-hmm. this paragraph is something that is at the heart of whatever we're talking about right yeah. now. Yeah. You write to absolve ourselves of guilt, to confess, to right a wrong, to be heard, to apologize, to clarify things for ourselves or others. I've wondered all these things as I sit down to write this. So yeah. where'd you come out on that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that essay is really complicated because that's an essay I really didn't want to write. There was a sense of feeling like I had to and no, it felt like a guillotine hanging over my head because, you know, of course, that case went to trial Women did come forward. Um, they were, you know, it, they had a horrible experience being on the stand and going through the court process. He was acquitted. I stayed silent knowing that my story would not be more credible in a court of law than theirs. But the difference was I have a family of lawyers. I have friends who are lawyers who are able to advise me. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. But I sort of lived with that, that sense that I watched these women go through this court process knowing that what I had to say would not help them, but also staying silent feels pretty horrific. So I spent years and years thinking, what do I do? How do I do it? Do I do it? And what I think I ended up with was what I can do is tell the story of why women don't come forward, about how— from your point of view. From, from my point of view, and because yeah. we don't hear those stories. What we don't hear is the stories of, I think it's 98% of women who have gone through an experience like this make the decision to not go through the hell of telling their story. So I thought what I can contribute at this point is to shine a light on on that voice and also to, in a way, um, show solidarity with those women by showing how similarly uncredible my story would have been on the stand. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, why the hell would I tell it now? It's unbelievably crappy to have to talk about and have out in the world? And also, what if I expose all the embarrassing stuff, all the details that would make my story seem inconsistent or hard to believe or not stand up in a court of law? What if I volunteer that instead of, you know, having a prosecutor coming at me? Yeah. And what might that do in terms of the conversation around this? Yeah. If we start talking more about and revealing how memory works after trauma, how storytelling works after trauma in terms of how we tell a story, how we might tell it to others, how we might reframe it. Right. Well, that that part of of the essay, in terms of you know how the court works and and what it requires in in terms of truth, and how 
the human mind works and how, you know, what it requires of itself to do in light of trauma is uh, that seemed to be a very kind of, you know, progressive, possibly progressive line of thinking in terms of correcting the problem around how victims are seen. Yeah. And I and I think we're making some headway there. Like, I do think there's a growing understanding that similarly, Dr. Lori Haskell talks about this a lot, who specializes in this stuff, but she talks about how we don't expect someone after a major car accident to be able to tell you who was walking by, what color coat they were wearing, what the color of the other three cars were, because we would understand the brain is so traumatized it can't do that. Yeah. And it can't consign those things to memory in that moment. But with in a sexual assault case, we expect all those details to be pitch perfect or the person must be lying. Yeah. And that's pretty problematic. Yeah. And it's weird. I I knew that guy. I had done his show a couple of times. Mm-hmm. I remember when all this had gone down. And just you know, sort of you reckoning with yourself around having that experience with him and then still having to deal with yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and watching yourself do interviews with him it's so weird. Yeah, uh, you can yeah. watch them now. Yeah, no, which and, I did, and and, <laughs> and that was so. It was so interesting, just in terms of seeing my body language and the way I relate to him. And there's all of this kind of overly friendly, almost ingratiating um, behavior, which I don't really do with many people. Yeah, but I was doing it with him, and there was some sense of discomfort and awkwardness and denial and. It's a really strange thing to have a record of that and to be able yeah. to look back at it. And also thinking, especially in the climate before Me Too, which is when that trial happened with yeah. them, um, if someone had played that in a court of law yeah. in that moment, it would have been like, well, there's no chance this happened because look at her. Yeah. Like, she's not going to sit in a room across from someone who did this. They're having in fun. Fact, in fact, m- so many women have exactly this experience of yeah. having post-assault contact. And it looks really different than what you would imagine yeah. in the abstract for it to look like. It's really complicated what you do when you feel fearful or, you're, or more importantly, I think, trying to normalize things or reframe them as something that wasn't that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what uh, it, it seems that a lot of these conversations, though, that you're having right now are, are within this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, right. and yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and the book, the the film in so many ways is so true to Miriam Taves's book, Women Talking. So I feel like I feel slightly complicated as sort of about mapping my experience sure. onto yeah, yeah, yeah. her work. Uh-huh. Certainly, it was one of sadly many experiences I have had that spoke to me in terms of through through reading her book. Yeah, I would say yeah. the Gian story probably wasn't the most important story in terms of my connection to the material. What was? I mean, <laughs> who knows? I don't want to, I mean, what I didn't want it to be is a trauma dump. I kind of wanted sure. to make sure that every story was a story of it didn't feel like either recovery yeah. or moving through something. Or struggle. Yeah. With self. Yeah. You know, I, none of it felt like a trauma dump. That's good. Like, <laughs> I, I feel like everybody was engaged in, you know, in, in the debate, but also the people that, you know, we're clearly experiencing different versions of trauma. Mm-hmm. We're struggling with themselves. Mm-hmm. They had to struggle with some other thing, which is yeah. the, you know, the history of this type of thinking. Yeah. Right. And and complicity, which is, I think, something that we've all had to reckon with a lot in the last six or seven years. You know, this sense that, yes, a lot of harm was done, but also what did we see that we knew was wrong and didn't do anything about? Yeah. And how were we also not just victims of this kind of thing, but also part of the problem 
And so I think that, yeah, I mean, I think Sheila's character especially, in order for this group to move on and come to come some kind of resolution moving forward together, some apologies have to be made. There has to be some accountability. And in fact, that's sort of the pivotal moment in the film is yeah. when this mother apologizes to her daughter for encouraging um, her to go back to a situation over and over again that was unsafe and dangerous and violent. Yeah. And that happens a lot. Yeah. In, in life. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I, uh, you know, I'm trying to, uh, you know, I'm not having children and, uh, you know, I'm not getting <laughs> married again. And <laughs> I just am insulated in the horrors of humanity in a way. Maybe when you come to Canada, yeah, you'll relax enough. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. Once you have, yeah, I don't. I don't know how. It's just everything's so fucking scary. It is, but don't you think? Also, I don't know. I I think lately I've just been so amazed by, like. In a way, the horrors aren't surprising. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? For us yeah. as a species, what's surprising is how many people do kind of connect and reach out yeah. to others and help each other. Like that actually is to me what the big surprise is, is that we're capable of all this kind of great stuff as well. I kind of cling to that. I don't mean to sound like, you know, obnoxiously optimistic and Pollyannish, but I do just feel like, I don't know, our, I think our capacity for imagination yeah. and for collaboration and... And seeing something else is bigger than we think it and, is. And I also think, uh, honestly, that instinctively people show up for people. Yeah. And and that yeah. they're in a mediated culture, which we live in, where, you know, people kind of can hide behind, you know, screen names or, or yeah. distance or even just texting, that, you know, none of that is called upon. But, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks or whatever the, you know, whatever the the adage is that people generally show up, you know, mm -hmm. for complete strangers. Mm -hmm. I used to notice that about New York all the time, living in New York. Like the sh like if somebody went down on the street for whatever reason, within seconds, mm -hmm. there's somebody like in charge and, and making it, yeah. you know, taking care of it. And I, and, I, and I do believe that people do that. Yeah. I, I don't know how long it'll last <laughs> in the culture we live in. But but I do, I think that it is instinctive that people want to yeah. take care uh, of each other. And and when, and also like what you're talking about, when people get sort of in that groove of generational abuse, it, it you know, I, I, it seems like that's the hardest cycle to break mm -hmm. because that's one of those situations where people are like, do, I don't know if we are, is it our place? Mm -hmm. That's what I hear a lot of. Like, you know, I don't want to, Get involved in family. You yeah. Know, what? Yeah, or the need to just kind of keep the peace and keep things nice. Yeah. I think can do so much incredible harm. And I think about that a lot in terms of telling personal stories like in my book. Yeah. Um, where there's can be this sense sometimes of, oh, but do you do you really want to open that up? Or do you really want to make that person look bad? Or, you know, th there's a, some sense in which... The truth should come second to just keeping things kind of functioning and status quo and keeping people comfortable yeah. and keeping people's images intact of, you know, who they would like someone to or believe someone to be. And 
And it's just like after all the conversations we've had in the last six and seven years about the importance of telling these stories, I think we're still not really there in terms of being able to accept that's going to involve some discomfort. Right. For everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Well, I mean, it it feels like in a lot of ways, you know, on a lot of fronts that there's definitely progress being made. Yeah. I mean, yes, but I'm feeling really intensely right now this blowback when it comes to the Me Too movement, when it comes to Black Lives Matter, when it comes to a whole host of things that felt like, okay, here we are, we're on our way somewhere, maybe. I keep having to remind myself, right, progress isn't linear. So as, you know— Someone described it to me recently, this this guy I know who's a political guy, and he said, it's short periods of reform followed by long periods of reaction. That is that is what you need to accept as someone who That's wants historical? to see change. That's historical. There's a short period of reform, really, really fast. Hopefully you get as much done as you possibly can in the little window, and then there's a giant backlash. And then you wait till the next little moment where people pop up again, and there's some progress. Well, it's interesting. And right now I do feel the wave of... You know, in all in so many yeah. on so many levels, we do feel the wave of that that backlash and that okay, you've had your minute, sit down, shut up, we're done. But, and there's also like a fairly organized and and uh, proud fascism going on. Yeah. In in democratic countries. Yeah. Like mine. Yeah. And yours to and a lesser too. degree, but yeah. it's there. Absolutely. And and you know that enables something that's worse than just pushback. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it, it it seeks to to redefine, you know, what priorities are through violence and annihilation. Yeah. So, and I think that's a very real thing. It's a very real thing, and it's not. You know, the other thing is is that the the people who are holding these beliefs right now aren't. You know, they don't seem like the kind of people who would had those feelings 10 or 15, 20 years ago. I mean, I've seen friends of mine become really radicalized. You know, I know people who were, I was close to who I love, who suddenly were at that freedom convoy, you know, in Ottawa, the truckers protest. And what do you make of that? When I make of the fact that that happened. Well, I, like, let's just talk about those people individually. What, what? The people that I know, that I love, and that I still love. I mean, and I have, you know, I have relatives. I sure. think many people who, you know, definitely vote do, a very yeah. different way. I think that there is a genuine sense of disenfranchisement that is real mm. and is based on poverty and economic struggle. Um, that has been piloted by really insidious people into something else. And it goes into conspiracy theories and it goes into racism and it goes into all these ugly places, which isn't to say that the seeds weren't already there, you but know, of misogyny been, and racism, all these things. Right. But I think that this this very real concern about how little room there is for people to advance economically at a certain level – has just been co-opted into all of the I – mean, I'm not saying anything new and I'm not even saying it very eloquently. But it is interesting for me now to see how close up it is Yeah. and how – you know, I remember a, a really good friend of mine discovering five or six years ago, looking at each other's Facebook feeds and realizing, oh, my God, we literally just have completely different news sources. And this was someone right. I saw then get rad- completely radicalized within a very short space of time and was yeah. suddenly – at the Freedom Convoy or, you know, scrolling through TikTok and looking for self-help and suddenly every third video is Jordan Peterson. Yeah. And then that quickly leads you to a whole bunch of people 
doing these transphobic rants. And so yeah. you go into TikTok, maybe, you know, somebody who hasn't like thought a lot about these things and goes in very, very good intentions wanting self-help and ends up a week later radicalized into this total bigot who hates trans people. And you've gone down this rabbit hole through Jordan Peterson's pretty legitimate sounding self-help stuff and then into his more furious, rage-filled, despair-filled rants about... You know, the future of men. The future of men. And it's like it's such a quick process of radicalization now. Now it could take you a week as opposed to a few months of actually seeing people. You can do it on your own on your phone. Do you do you maintain friendship with these people? I do. I have a really strict policy actually of yeah. maintaining contact and forcing them to as well. Like I I'm like I need to hear what you're thinking and feeling, and I need you to hear what I'm thinking and feeling, and we will keep speaking. These are family and, members or friends? Both. Yeah. And we will remain respectful and we will like and we are going to tell each other what we are hearing and listening to. I'm just I because I just think the end of everything yeah. is retreating into our corners and not having those conversations. You know, it's right, it's you, just I think that terrifies me more than anything in the world is that we say okay, fuck it, I'm not talking to you. Yeah. You're disgusting. Yeah. And they say the same about me. And then we just are in our little echo chambers and we have no way of reaching each other anymore. And I just think that to me – and that to me is apocalyptic. And in a way, so much of why I made this film is about what does it look like to have a room of people who really disagree with each other and they have to work to each other with each other. Their life depends on it. Their society depends on it. And that is actually the situation we're in right now. Yeah. We are in a situation where our life depends on figuring out a way of speaking to each other. Yeah. And how has the response been to the film? It's been amazing. It's just yeah. an amazing experience of having these really rich, dynamic, surprising, challenging conversations. And yeah, I've loved it. And I think usually part of this process where you're out shucking your yeah, wares yeah. can be so soul destroying. But I kind of can't wait because I just feel like, you know, I'm always learning something. Someone's always yeah. challenging me on something I haven't been challenged on before. I'm never able to be lazy. I'm never answering the same question. It's just, it's really interesting, I think, because there's so many points of view in the film, which comes again from Miriam's book, that there's a lot of different ways that people seem to find a portal into it. And and I imagine if you're doing Q&A or what, even having a conversation on a panel, that it's almost like the film stops, but that conversation just continues on. Yeah. From a personal level. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it happened to all of us shooting it, too. Like, I mean, we had to have those policies of no one gets to walk away. Oh, yeah. No one has to keep talking, you know, and that was kind of an amazing thing. So seeing all of our relationships evolve and continue to evolve just feels like this were is there, an extension of the film. Were there decisions made because of conversations that were had, you know, during the shooting? Yeah, lots. With actors and with people behind yeah. the camera? Yeah. So oh, there's, yeah? there's my favorite moment in the film is actually... That moment I alluded to earlier where um, Sheila McCarthy's character yeah, apologizes yeah. to Jesse Buckley's character. And I hadn't written it the right way. It's not a moment that's in the book. Um, and we shot Jesse's side of it. And one of our crew members had a really hard time. He had been through um, – he had grown up in a kind of similar community in a way. There had been abuse. There had been no responsibility taken. There had been no apology to him. It had gone on for a very long time. Yeah. And he watched Jesse's performance, her response to the apology, and he felt something in him just kind of come 
loose and go, like, that is exactly what I lived a few years ago, where I just realized everything I'd been led to believe was wrong. And then we turned around, and I had not scripted Sheila's apology properly. And, he, and I just turned to him and said, would that be good enough for you? And he went, no, she doesn't say I'm sorry. Are you crazy? Like I, like, I was like, so what would you need to hear from your parents? And we talked about it for a long time. And then I sort of went up to Sheila and said, at the end of your speech to her, if you feel like you have to say I'm sorry, say it. Don't say it unless you feel like you have to. And then she just suddenly said it three times in a row. And it just kind of shattered the room the way she took hold of that and also gave to this crew member the thing they had needed and wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah. And it was an amazing collective process of finding binding that together. And that yeah. was the joy of this film was people, not just the cast, but the crew were just kind of giving everything they had yeah. to every moment. And we were able to kind of find things that we didn't know we we wanted or needed. Well, it's great. It's amazing. Amazing work. I'm Thank all choked you. up now. Seriously. Because I got to rewatch it, you know. It's one of those things where you have to rewatch it. Mm. You've watched it a hundred times. I've watched it enough, yeah. <laughs> I, don't need, I don't need to watch it again. It was great talking to you. Sarah. It was so good to talk to you. Thank Thanks. you so much. Women Talking is now playing in theaters and watch your other movies too. That the documentary was pretty great. So, all right, hang out. Hang out for a minute. Hey, folks, this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here. And when they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, we're back. I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, we just missed Sarah Pauly, but because it's a podcast, just rewind. Not even rewind. Move the thing. Go back. There's no rewinding. Back it up. David Crosby is dead. The man, the mustache, the music, the myth. I talked to David Crosby in 2016. He hung out a long time and I think wanted to spend the day. It was nice talking to him, but he was like, can I come back? Can we talk about uh, nuclear uh, power? <laughs> but uh, it was funny. It was he's. It, it's it's a good episode, and you should listen to it. He was on episode 751. It's from uh, back in October 2016. It's really hard to understand your place in the world. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't look at myself the way everybody else of does. Of course not, know, right. I, I know what a bozo I really am, you know. And you try to tell people, and you say, no, no, I put my pants on one leg at a time. Same right. as you, you know. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I've, you know... My life in in relation to the rest of the world has yeah. been very strange. 
uh, making all the mistakes that I made in front of the world, that was not fun. Again, that's David Crosby, episode 751, and you can listen to that for free on all podcast platforms or at WTFpod.com. Hey, if you're just joining us, David Crosby is episode 751. Rest in peace, David. I recorded that back in October 2016. It's available now. Tomorrow, folks, on the Full Marin, Wrestling with Mark continues with AEW superstar Chris Jericho. He tells me what it's been like to break into the wrestling business when he was 19 and travel all over the world building his reputation. If you're not already a Full Marin subscriber, go to the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF+. Plus. On Thursday, I talk with half-Canadian Brendan Fraser, who may be an Oscar nominee for Best Actor by the time you hear this episode. Deservingly so. All right. Guitar. Everything's clean in here now. I cleaned it all up. If you're just joining us, we're uh, we're ending the show with some guitar, which we always do. Enjoy. everywhere.